Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mailbag edition. Yeah, Andrew's even smiling. I can see him from here. Yeah, okay. It's, well, like, it's, not, it's not exactly unusual, but it's still very special, Andrew. I'm, I'm, I'm holding on to that. Of course, the Andrew I'm talking about is Andrew Ram Page, the man himself, the straw man himself. Um, Andrew, g'day. And uh, what exactly is straw man again? Oh, you, you know, I'm really, I'm really having to reach down deep now to to, to find something different. And I'm taking an unreasonable amount of joy in making you do it too. Can I say it's really, really unfair? But I'm loving every minute of it. <laughs> it it's kind of fun, but I'm I'm worried about what, what are we doing in, in in three months' time? It's like I'm oof, mate, three weeks, I'm three already, weeks. I'm, yeah, I'm already, I'm already struggling. So, <laughs> so strawman.com. It's it's a it's a forum where investors can get together, share ideas, learn from one another. It's it's I guess one way of describing it is it's like the hive mind. You know, it's a whole bunch of people <laughs> trying to collaborate, but where we're a bit different, I'd say very different from other other forums, is that we put accountability front and center of what we do. So when when mm. you're hearing some random avatar talk about a particular stock, you can actually see their track record. You can see how the community has endorsed their content. So it helps you sort of, I would say, cut through all the noise and bluster that is so typical of other forums and really is just a, a, a very, sadly, a very hostile place for many of these ch- chat <laughs> forums. So we're we're, we're basically an investment club that, that looks looks to sort of re- recognise and reward uh, those who have actually done well and are offering good recommendations, insights, and advice. There you go, Phil. Heard it here first. Uh, give it a couple of weeks. I'll be, I'll be pushing on this one. Also, by the way, if you're listening to Andrew and he's used the same one before, let us know. Jump onto Twitter at say <laughs> underscore Simeon or Strawman Invest. I'm TMF Scott P or The Motley Fool AU. You can choose any of those. We're also on Instagram, TMF Scott P or The Motley Fool AU, and on Facebook, Scott Phillips and Money and The Motley Fool Australia. And let us know. Just just let me look. I'm not saying I want to pick on Andrew. I'm just saying if you happen to notice he uses the same one <laughs> twice, let me know. I, I'd, I'd like to know. Just you know, for for, for um, journalistic integrity and, and all those good things. That, that's all. Just you know. I all I would people. say, you know, a, a little bit of empathy. Imagine if I asked you every week, what does the Motley Fool do? But, but <laughs> hey, don't describe you to do it, it differently every week. You're the only one to do it differently. I'm, I'm happy to use the same one if you want to. You just said you do it differently. So I'm holding oh. you to that promise you made to our listeners, mate, that, 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 that trust you've developed that you wouldn't possibly <laughs> breach with our listeners by, oh, by you know, I instantly yourself. regret that commitment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. Let's get on with our mailbag question. We've got a heap in the mailbag, which is awesome. Please keep sending Excellent. them through. Um, a quick, uh, a quick hint, a quick uh, heads up for for our listeners. I'm going to go away for three weeks in uh, the end of June, and so we're going to pre-record some. So I could really, really do with some extra mailbag questions. I, I want, well, I'll beg if I have to. I'm not begging yet. I'm asking nicely. But if you do have any mailbag, if you've been thinking of sending them through for a while, help me, help you, help me, help you. And uh, send it through, please. We'll add them to the list and we'll get through them over the next, uh, well, there's a little while till I leave, but certainly we're looking to back them up and have plenty on hand when we have to pre-record a few weeks worth of episodes. So do me a favour. Otherwise, Andrew's going to have to sit here and talk to himself and that's, you know, no fun for anybody. So No one wants that. Do, do that for me if you would. All right, here's one from Joe, mate. Let's kick off with Joe's question about A2 Milk. Joe says, hey, Scott and Andrew, thank you for continually producing valuable content each week. Thanks, Joe. I listen avidly to your podcast as content is released on my one-hour commute to work. And I appreciate the insights into various companies, many of which I've heard of, some I haven't, but always happy being educated further, especially in what would normally be dead time, which is driving. I'm a subscriber to Extreme Opportunities in Australia and Rule Breakers in the US. Joe says, my question today is regarding A2 Milk. I purchased shares in one of the dips in October last year, as it's a company I'd been aware of since 2016, but I wasn't investing back then. I wanted to get in and hold for the long term as I've always loved the company. I knew they were dependent on China and impacted here, but was hoping to see some further penetration in the US market. Yeah, me too. And knew they had a strong balance sheet at the time with $850 million in cash, thus being able to ride out the economic downturn. Even as it's gone down further from my purchase price, I've stayed true to my thesis. I don't need the money I invested, so I've been happy to hold. However, as the share price took another huge hit recently, and there's now talks of a capital management initiative such as share buyback, this is where things get a little cloudy for me. I bought in, she says, at a price 50% higher than the current share price, and I've never intended to sell, especially at a loss. Will I have a choice though? Can you please explain a little more about the options regarding this talk of a buyback 
and what it may entail for a retail investor such as myself. I participated in capital raises before for companies I've invested in and have always been happy to do so as I believe their future growth potential, I believe in their future growth potential, sorry, thus accepting they need funding to pursue that growth. However, a buyback is something I'm unfamiliar with and it has me a little unsettled. I'm not sure whether I should sell now at a 50% loss and just write it off. I don't want to, she says in brackets, but I also don't understand fundamentally how they work. So I worry if I wait till media to learn all the details, the share price may fall further and then I'll be forced, in air quotes, by ways of a buyback, to sell anyway at a bigger loss. But I may have this all wrong, says Joe. Thanks so much for your time on this question. I appreciate it greatly. That is, as I said, from Joe. Mate, I own A2 Milk, full disclosure. Uh, I haven't mm. been uh, enjoying the ride either, so I'm with you, Joe. Um, share buybacks. How do they work, Andrew? Yeah, so uh, the first thing I'd say is, um, I think it was last week's episode, we actually talked a bit about our, our, our different views on A2. So we, we, we probably won't cover the, 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 that in too much detail. So go back Good and man. listen to last week. Um, so buybacks, buybacks are, are fascinating. Um, it's often touted as a way to return money to shareholders, which I've always thought is a funny way because the only money they're really returning it to the people who participate in the buyback. <laughs> if, if you don't participate in the buyback, you, you don't get any cash whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But of course, what they're talking about here is just the way that you cut the pizza up. So A2 milk mm-hmm. is A2 milk. It could have one share representing that or it could have a billion shares. And so, you know, the pizza is the pizza is the pizza. It's the same size as it, as it was before and after. Yep. Um, it's just how you cut it out. So, so when, when a company buys back its shares, it buys back those shares. It can do that on market or it can do it directly uh, off market mm-hmm. through shareholders. And then it tears them up uh, metaphorically. So, mate, you know, it, I'm going to stop it, you there for a second. Let's just yep. go into on and off market firstly. So on market literally means the company gets a broker to buy shares as if you or I would. On the air, someone's yep. selling. I can buy them or you can buy them or the company can buy them themselves. Off-market is basically where they send you a letter in the mail and say, hey, we'll take it back if you would like. And you basically send them a letter and say, yes, please. And it's all done without being done on the ASX. So I just want to clarify that just for those who maybe don't, don't understand those terms. It's a really good point. In fact, you and I can do that off-market. So I can sell yeah. you my shares off-market as well. And anyone, I'll pay you half frankly. I'll pay you half of what they're worth. And, and you're entitled to if we agree on it we, we can <laughs> we can do Correct. that so there's off market there's something called an off-market transfer form and if, if you want to sell your shares uh, to someone else you can do it doesn't doesn't have to be through through the market but anyway yep. Um, pro- probably don't want to do that. Um, uh, yeah. So, so what what the company's doing? It's buying its shares back and it's tearing them up. So let's let's have a nice simple example. Let's say there's ten shares on issue. It buys back five of them, and yep. you don't participate in that buyback. In other words, you keep your shares. Well, your ownership in the company is just doubled. The proportional so instead of only ten percent, I had one. I had one of those ten shares, and I yep. had a ten percent ownership. Now there's only yep. five left. I still own one of them, so I now own twenty percent. Twenty percent right. you now own. So that's how that's how your the value is being transferred to you in an indirect kind of way. Yep. You've just got a much larger holding. Well, in the business now, in my example, it's a much larger holding. In in most examples with this, you know, they're they're probably only buying back a very small percentage. So it's yeah. not it's not a huge increase. Buy back three um, or five percent of their shares on issue. So your, your ownership increases by that same proportion. But it's not. It, it's like it's you take it. Actually, Warren Buffett talks about this with yeah. Apple. The ownership of yeah. Apple, and I think back Wells Fargo back in the day, kept keeps increasing dramatically because the company's buying shares back. And Buffett's like, "Hey, we bought eight percent of Apple. Now we own ten percent of Apple, and it's a real yeah. thing, right?" It's, it's, Apple is. A, I saw uh, Doc, uh, uh, your your former partner in crime, and mine too. Um, and Irban had something on Twitter about that as well. Just how significant those buybacks have oh, been. Oh, nice. I missed that. So, so it's a, it's, um, it's, it's. Is it a, so? Here's the question. To, uh, finally, get around to it, Joe. Is it is it a good thing or a bad thing? Well, like so much in investing in the market, it depends. Um, uh, you, you still have to have a, a view on the particular company. There's no point in owning twice as much of a crappy company than you did yeah, before right, if you right, really right. hate it. You know, um, <laughs> yeah. if you really love the business and its prospects, it's it's a it's a great thing. Yeah. Um, but even then, there's a there's a consideration. The other consideration is, well, what price are they buying back the shares? So. Yeah. It's yeah. silly for a business to buy back. It's, so if A2 Milk said, yeah, we're going to buy back shares and what are they, five bucks or so at the moment, but we're going to pay 10 bucks per share. It's a terrible use of its money. Yeah. Um, it, it, so, so it only makes sense when 
they have and you have a pretty firm conviction that the shares are good value because if the shares are overpriced or expensive, it's actually a, it's a very poor use of shareholder capital. So if you offered um, to buy half of my house for $5 million, I'd take it because I don't have a $10 million house. So if you're going to overpay, yeah. I'll happily I'll happily let you buy back. In, it's not exactly buying back; you don't own it in the first place. But to, to torture the analogy, you you can buy half my house for five million dollars anytime you want, mate. But if you get, if you yeah. want to buy back half my house for ten grand, I'm going to say no because that clearly undervalues the half that you're buying back. So when yes. when I when I get something for what I'm giving up, or other shareholders do, or more importantly, if you're the one giving out the cash, if I say to you, "Hey, I'll sell him half my house for five million dollars," you're going to say, "Dude, I'm mm. not going to pay that. That's that's ridiculous." Um, yep. But if a company was going to do the same thing and buy back their shares, the equivalent of, you know, a five million dollar for half a house, you'd say, well, that's probably a bit over the top, guys. It's not adding value. I own more than I used to, but gee, I paid a lot for it. Versus if you got a, if you got half my house for ten grand, you'd be doing yourself an absolutely great deal, and you'd be really stoked with having paid that money because you own more of it and you got a really good deal. Yep, that, and that's that. That is exactly the way to think about it. So, Joe, if 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 you continue to like A two milk, if you see the shares as a good value, then don't participate in in the buyback and just mm-hmm. let your let your shareholder let your proportional ownership of the business increase. So that means that the uh, the earnings on a per share basis will also increase. So the profit is the profit, whatever that happens to be. But on a per share basis, it'd be higher than it otherwise would be, and that and 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 that's going to be a good thing um, uh, for you uh, over time. So, so you yeah. Now, mate, I, I want to go to Joe's question said, just just quickly because yeah. it's the one the one thing I think that Joe was asking about is is the requirement to be forced to have her shares bought back is kind of what she's alluding to at the end of her question. And I think this no, is where, yeah. yeah, so it's worth just addressing this, Joe. Generally speaking, the company won't or can't force you to sell your shares back to the company. So they can't arbitrarily buy them back. You have to offer them to be bought back either on or off market. So if you want to keep your shares, yeah. you won't be forced to sell them back with two exceptions. Uh, the first is what you might be thinking of, which is a compulsory acquisition. If I was to go and buy A2 as a whole company and I got 90% of shareholders to agree to my takeover, so I offered them eight bucks a share, Everyone said, yep, here's, here's, my, here's our shares, so give me your money. And I bought 91.3% of the company back. Under law, I'm allowed to compulsorily acquire the rest of the company. So if I own more than 90%, I can take the rest of it over. At, it's gonna be at the same price, by the way. I can't, I can't do a dodgy on you. So you might want $12 for it. I, I won't give you that, but I will buy back the rest of the shares, but it's compulsory at that point. So you're, you're obliged yep. to. I think, Andrew, am I right in saying the company can forcibly... Uh, buy back an unmarketable parcel. Is that is that are they legally allowed to do yeah. that? Or can they offer yeah. So if you've got a small I number of shares, so, yeah. a couple of hundred, the company can also in some circumstances force you to sell those shares back to them at the market price. It just means they haven't got lots and lots and lots of little shareholders that cost them a fortune to serve um, that own, you know, five hundred bucks, hundred bucks worth of shares. It's just not economical mm. for a company to actually have those shareholders on the register. So it's not ideal. Yep. Um, but they can do it in those two that, I think they're the only two circumstances in which you can be forced to part with your shares. Is that right? Yeah, I, I believe so. I mean, this is the this is the great thing about being a shareholder. I mean, you you yeah. own the you abs. I mean, I drive my wife crazy all the time whenever we walk past the company <laughs> that we've got shareholder. That's my company, you know, and it is, and it literally is true. Well, yeah. in part, <laughs> it and 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 so you you are afforded all of the rights and privileges that come with that. There you go. So, Joe, don't you don't have to sell your shares if there's a buyback. You should hope the company's doing it at a reasonable price. Uh, I've got to say, if you think A2 is worth $10 or $15 and the current shares are currently five, you should want the company to buy back as many shares as they possibly can, as long as they don't put themselves in financial jeopardy. Because if they're worth 15 and they're buying back at five, they're effectively buying back for a third of their real value. Now, if they're not worth 15, yeah. that's different. I'm not saying they are worth 15, by the way, but just if you like the shares long term, you think they're going to be worth more in the future, you want the company to buy as many of those shares back at the current price as you can possibly get. Although, as Andrew's already said, you know, I have different views, so maybe. It'd be a terrible use of cash, but if you thought that was the case, you should also sell your own shares and, and move on. Well, right, it is getting thing, more interesting. Okay. getting it is getting more interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll say that the lower <laughs> it gets. Um, uh, the other the other thing I, I know I say this almost every week, but it just so many people very understandably frame the question in terms of when they bought it and whether they're yes. up or down. Yes. I just just your periodic reminder that that shouldn't factor into your calculations at all. Yep. So. Yep. You've got X dollars in this company today. You can't change the past. It's always a question of where to from here. So a lot of us make really bad decisions because we we don't want to realize the loss. We don't want to accept that. You know, we will wait for even if we don't like the company anymore. We say, oh, we wanted to go up, and then I will sell. (laughs) You know, you you press a few buttons, and that that money is now in something else. So so don't don't 
what you paid for it doesn't matter. The market doesn't know or care. But yeah, I think that that's that's really important, mate. The other thing is you don't, as I say, you'd have to make it back the same way you lost it, right? So um, exactly, if you exactly. if you if you put a thousand dollars in a shares now worth five hundred bucks, the only question you should ask yourself is how can I best turn that thousand the five hundred bucks back into a thousand? Uh, yep. Whether it's maybe it's the current company, by the way, maybe maybe I yeah. is exactly the right place. Might you be. might go, you know what? I've got two thousand options out there. I can sell my shares in A two. In fact, we've talked about this before on the podcast. One of the great mental exercises to do to test your own thinking is to say. If I was to force to liquidate my entire portfolio this afternoon when the market closed and then buy it back tomorrow morning, would I buy back yep. the same shares? If the answer is yep. yes, then great. If you're like, oh, no, no way. No, I'd, I'd, I would buy A2 at $5. It's a terrible idea. I only hold him because I've lost money. It's like, well, there you go. That, that's what that tell- Now, there's tax and stuff, so don't, don't take it too literally. But conceptually, mm. think about it that way and ask yourself, I've got the portfolio I've got, but if, I, you know, if, my, if my broker went haywire today and tomorrow morning said, oh, really sorry, look, Market closed yesterday. We accidentally sold all your shares. Here's your money. You haven't lost anything. But uh, which shares would you like us to buy back for you? If they're not the ones you currently hold, that's a really good sign you should reconsider your portfolio. And just very quickly, in terms of the tax, the one <laughs> the one good thing, I suppose, about having a loss is that there's no tax. Um, <laughs> uh, in fact, you can you can carry that loss forward. So if you've lost, okay. if you've had a $5,000 capital loss, and then you make five thousand dollars elsewhere. You can offset those two things, and that and that yep. capital loss can be carried forward for a million years. So you know it might for you might make a really good gain ten years from now, and you can still yes. apply that loss. So it's ta- tax in a, in that scenario makes no difference at all. Correct, correct. Although I would say, don't, yeah, but the reverse also true. Don't sell just because of the tax either to save the tax. Yes, because uh, the yes, shares are going to yes. go up. You don't want to you don't want to take the tax loss and then see the shares skyrocket and go. Oh man, I sold because I wanted to. You know, get a win out of the tax man. I've lost a fortune in the, yep. the project. Which I know is not what you're saying, Ram, but just to kind of yeah, do yeah, both yeah. those yeah, sides of the point. same the same argument. All right, totally. Mate, let's move to the next question from Joseph this time. Hey Scott, great work on the pod with Andrew. Thank you, mate. Your conversations are quite rich with a useful mix of economics and investing insight. Thank you, mate. They nicely complement my extreme opportunities and a couple of US Motley Fool services updates and articles. Thanks. Here's do you like do you add do you add the preamble to all of these emails? Like just just <laughs> a clarification here. Mate, I, I, they all, be they all seem if very I, glowing. Mate, if I, if I did, it'd be better than that. You think they're glowing <laughs> now? If you, if you ask me to put it in, here, let, let me let me let me recast Joseph's email. Scott, you're really really smart, really funny too. <laughs> Gee, you're good looking. Mate, if I was your boss, I'd pay you twice as much. No, see, that's, that's how you'd know if it was if it was really Okay, me. okay. Just checking, just checking. <laughs> All right. Joseph says, my question follows your discussion of compounding. I particularly like, so I love this, mate. So listeners, listen up to this one. Do this for yourself, right? Joseph says, I particularly liked seeing the math of a 10% compounding effect on 25,000 over 42 years, turning the principal into $3.2 million. He says, I wrote out the maths line by line in seven-year intervals on our fridge whiteboard. My That's wife cool. couldn't resist reading it and at dinner said, okay, let's do it. He says, I've been working on her for years, mate. So there you go. There's not, 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 for, not for husbands and wives, just generally. Do it for yourself, literally. So I can say 25 grand, 3.2 million, yeah, yeah, whatever. whatever. Honestly, do, do, do mean yourself, write that down. Literally do the maths. Line by line by line in seven-year intervals, Assuming you double every seven years, we'll get to that this question in a minute. Do that and, and it'll blow your mind. And it'll also, I don't know if it'll pressure guests at dinner parties, but certainly gives you a good conversation to have with your significant other. All right, here he says, now for my question. Mm. <sighs> Bloody Andrew. Andrew mentioned he expects the market <laughs> might grow a tad slower over the next decade or so than the market averages have compounded historically. Well, considering this, he says, I hope you would comment on how inflation might also affect the buying power of that growing 25 grand nest egg example that you gave us. Wouldn't it likely be the case that although the market may grow more slowly, wouldn't the sum total at any seven-year interval of an investment's compounding journey result in approximately the same buying power were the market to grow at historical rates? Thanks for all you blokes, or thanks for all you blokes do for the podcast and subscription audience. And full on. That's from Joseph. Thanks, Joseph. Appreciate the questions and the comments and the, the kind words, especially about how attractive and funny and you know smart I am. Um, that might have been me. <laughs> and the pay Ram. rise. Inflation? Um, market returns? Yeah. 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 Well, so look, I just, I, look, what my, my comments there are real. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to bet any great deal of money on that. It's, it's, and it's really just based on the view of where the market is relative to 
current multiples compared to how they sit historically, where interest rates and, and uh, are, et cetera, et cetera. I just think it, it will be harder. But at the same time, you know, it does, as I've said before, it doesn't change anything I do. And I could, would not be surprised at all if that, that view is right. wrong. And, and as we also said, I think in previous weeks, well, whatever whatever does happen, if, if history is any guide, the, the share market is likely to offer the best long-term compounding rate of return anyway. So if, anyway. It, if it does end up being 8% instead of 10% or something like that, it's probably yeah. going to be the better form of return that, that is available to me uh, out there. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so uh, does inflation make a difference? Yeah, it does because, you know um, – uh, it, it's it's not so much about the notional value of the dollars in your bank account. It's what you can actually buy with it. So if inflation yeah, exactly. grows at, at, at you know four uh, percent per year, and mm-hmm. I'm getting a three percent return, I'm actually losing money. Even though I've got a three yeah. percent return, I'm actually losing one yeah. percent each year in 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 power uh, in purchasing power. So um, yeah, it, it does it does make a difference. But again, I come back to that that comparative sort of standpoint. Like wh- whatever inflation is going to be, whatever inflation is going to be, mm-hmm. and you always. Just want to get a return that is the best that you can get, risk adjusted on on the cash that you've you've got. Mm. Um, so, does it change anything? Yeah, it does. So, you you could mm. probably sort of say, well, let, let's just stick with the, the the example that we normally do: ten percent per year. Um, you'll see the notional value of that increase in the way that Joseph has, has correctly outlined. But your purchasing power might only increase by seven percent compounded per year yeah. if you assume a three percent rate of inflation. And yeah. and yeah, it's 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 something to think about. But then my next point is, well, well, what do you do about it anyway? Right. Mm. So it's it's yeah. it's it's almost a mute point. What, what do you yeah. think? Yeah. No, you did right. Well, so a couple of things. Um, so first thing I say is I completely agree. The only question for any of us really isn't so. And that's why even when we look at so the stocks that we pick for Share Advisor, for example, that I run, um, and you and I, you, you and I worked together on Share Advisor back in the day before you launched Dividend Investor with us. And the, yeah. you know, we, we talked plenty of times about, you know, what do you, what are you, is it going to beat the market or not? And the question is, well, what's the market going to do? And we kind of came back to it. Kind of doesn't matter so much whether or not we know the answer to that. The only question we really ask ourselves is which of these companies has the best long-term potential? And if it does 10 and the market does 8, or it does 10 and the market does 12, well, so be it. If we pick the companies right, we're going to maximise our potential return no matter what. And so the same applies, I think, with inflation. So that there's that. I don't think it does matter, as you say. It, it, we need to be intellectually honest. So we can't just kind of go, oh, well, maybe it's not true, but you know, use, use the example anyway. And then, you know, so we've got, we've got, to, we've got to be accountable to that, to saying that. So, you know, I, I, I expect it will do 10% a year. Um, on average, over time, maybe nine, maybe eight, maybe eleven, but you know, that sort of range. Nine to eleven is the generally accepted average, and that's through mm. a whole lot of a whole lot of um, scenarios. So I would say, if the longer your time horizon, just these things tend to revert to the mean, to the average. So the longer your time horizon, yeah. the more likely it is the future looks like the past. Quite honestly, um, just because yeah. that tends to be the way that things happen. But we can't guarantee. Yeah. It. And you're absolutely right to ask the question. And we absolutely are. Uh, it's appropriate that we do say we don't know. We can't know. This is what we kind of think. Um, but again, as Andrew said, so we should we should be honest about intellectually honest about that question. But also, as Andrew says, add the bit of, but whatever's true, <laughs> we're going to invest in, the, in what we think is the best place, the right place. Uh, and so we still think shares are the right place to go. So that's absolutely true. Last thought on that is inflation is important. But if you, I've, I do this every couple of weeks. Google Vanguard Index Chart 2020. So that's Vanguard Index Chart 2020. There's a PDF you can look at. The the what's what's really important about compounding, mate, and this is what you know and I know, but and many people kind of get and and just on the numbers on the on the whiteboard, which which is awesome. If you put beside that the the, the value of inflation, so take your same twenty five grand and increase it at three percent every seven year, every you know per year, and put the seven year interval numbers down on that. And what you'll notice is yes, the difference. Say, let's say inflation is three and the return is ten. Let's just say it's that. The difference is seven percentage points, right? But it doesn't mean that inflation will eat 30% of your total gains because the compounding of 10 times 1.1 times 1.1, in other words, increasing by 10% every year, and inflation at 3, which is 1.03 times 1.03, the numbers get further and further away the more you do the maths. So yes, it eats away at your annual return, but if you can compound a larger number compared to compounding a smaller number, those numbers don't move in. The lines aren't parallel. They move away from each other really, really, really fast. And so... It's important to think about inflation, but it's also really, really important to concentrate on the difference and compounding the difference still makes a massive, massive difference. Have you got the chart open? I'm, I'm seeing you. Uh, I do. I just, I just followed so, your advice then. So yeah. over thirty, over thirty years, this, there's a CPI number there. So it's ten grand at CPI is what after thirty years? Two point four percent. 
All right, and what's the total? What's the dollar value? Oh, sorry, 20, 20 grand. 20 grand. Right, so so, so your, your purchasing become, power is halved. Right, so 10 grand has become 20 grand, right? Over, over that period of time. So that's fine. So, okay, that's taken, you know, the CPI is, actually, purchasing power is halved. What's 10 grand become invested in Australian shares over that same period of time? $130,500, which is right, about so 10, 9% per annum. Yeah. So the 10's gone to 130, and the 10 in CPI has gone to 20. And that gap mm. is really important, right? So that's why I'm saying it's not just seven percentage points. I mean, it is per year. When you compound the difference, that's a difference of 110 grand between those two mm. numbers. So yes, inflation yeah. matters. Yes, you should absolutely think about it in real terms if you want to, and intellectually, we probably should. But the bigger, the bigger story, frankly, why I don't tend to include inflation stuff in it is not to be untrue or to overstate the returns, just to make the really clear case of like, if you can turn, again, a, a different time period, I think you used 42 years, Joseph, so we have to extend the, the inflation out to the same amount. But let's say inflation goes from 10 to 40 over 42 years. If, 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 if or actually it's 25, so let me try and do the maths on that. Let's say, let's say 25 goes to 100 over 40 years in, in inflation. If 25 goes to 3.2 million, in shares, that's a pretty significant gap. And that's exactly why it's important to think about the compounding, the exponential nature of that, rather than just the absolute per annum numbers. 10 and 3 kind of feel closest together, right? Seven percentage points, not massive difference. Nice, but not massive. When you do have a 42 years, you really get a sense of the difference. Can I just say one more thing on that that, that chart that that is is really cool is that what they also do at the top, they also date stamp various events. So we've had this 9% compound return in shares. And then, you know, uh, back in the 90s, there was the Bond Corp collapse. There was the invasion (laughs) of Kuwait. Then we had the uh, Asian currency crisis. Uh, We had the terrorist attacks in the US. We had the dot-com bubble burst. We had the second Iraq war. We had the US subprime crisis. We had uh, the tsunami in Japan. We had the Gulf of Mexico oils. They just they list all of these like really massive, yeah. massive historical events, and all of them sent sent markets into a tailspin. Yeah. And yet, <laughs> and yet that is so. Again, it's not a it's not a as they say it's not a bug. It's a feature, and and yeah, yeah it's a it's a very up and down kind of line. But it's you got to you got to you got to fo- focus on the end result. Can you imagine the headlines if we if we'd have done that day by day by day rather than just running through a list of of crises every two or three years? Day by day by day, the headlines, don't invest here and, and the usual perver bear saying 90% crash coming and you, couldn't, you shouldn't invest during the Iraq war. What's going to happen with the world oil price? It's going to destroy the economy and yeah, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, right? Um, that, yeah. that is such... I, I, I have massive, massive chart envy on that one, mate. Like it is... Yeah. It, even at the bottom, they've got the... Um, I've got the unemployment rate or something. There's a little, there's a little gray. It's a new one. I think they've added halfway or two thirds of the way down at the bottom. They've got this gray line going up or down. It might be interest rates or changing something. Oh uh, yeah, it's, interest it's a, rates. Yeah, yeah. It's a really, really full, super useful kind of economic history in thirty in thirty years. Uh, grab it. Vanguard Index Chart 2020. There you go. I've done enough advertising for them. They're not for profits. I don't mind doing it, by the way. But um, yeah, yeah. just just grab it. All right. Question from Mick, mate. Dear Scott mm-hmm. and Strawman. That's you. Hey. Um, I won't ask you what Strawman does. We'll do that for next week. I, I love the show, he says. It's informative and entertaining. Thank you, mate. <laughs> now, with, with, with all due respect to our American cousins, he then goes on, I promise this is word for word. Listen to the American version, but sorry, Yanks, you two are much funnier. There you go. So I'll share that with our, uh, with our US colleagues. Although, although probably in- laughing at us and not with us. <laughs> yeah, so, there, is, right. there is context. That, uh, mate, you know, you know, but you, you know it's, it's all about comedy, mate. It doesn't matter whether they're laughing at you or with you as long as they're laughing. Um, <laughs> Mick says, I live in Dubai and work for the local airline there. Oh, mate, hopefully things are going all right. As you can imagine, he says, not much aviating going on in the last year or so. So I've used the ground time to read up on the stock market. Well, mate, well done for not wasting the time, but uh, mate, hopefully you're back in the air soon. I read a good book on index ETFs. Uh, it would be difficult to buy uh, also rule number one by Phil Town I don't really know those books it's unfortunately be difficult to buy anything using those stock valuation rules in today's market there we go and I'm about to start reading one up on Wall Street good man with my head spinning don't blame me with conflicting information I decided on a hybrid approach I put the majority into a Vanguard ASX 300 ETF and Vanguard World ETF as a Motley Fool member I've also enjoyed buying individual stocks to have some skin in the game and to help with the learning process. My question is, would you be better off saying fully invested in the stock market with regular contributions, he says in brackets, having little capacity to buy on the downturns, or keep some of your powder dry? For example, keeping 25% in cash and buy back in on the downturns. As Buffett Mm. says, buy your tuna cans when they're on sale. I'm sure many clever people have run the figures before, and I would appreciate to hear your opinions on this theory. 
I've got two more quick questions. So let's start with that one and go from there. Um, what do you reckon, mate? Keep some cash or stay fully invested? So the the second option sounds like the smarter option. Um, and it Who doesn't is, want to buy with their the, yeah, and and it is the smarter option with with this one caveat that you you can you can actually know when when the downturns are going to come. Um, the trouble is is that by the these really big draw and again just refer back to that chart we were talking about before the really yeah. big drawdowns the fifty percent kind of market crashes they kind of once a decade kind of thing mm. so some people a lot of people will find that by the time it comes. Two mm. things happen. One is you would have been better off just riding it all the way up and taking the knock and you'd still be better off. Uh, and two, when it actually happens, none of us, none of us, myself certainly included in this, behave in the way we expect we're going to. <laughs> so we, we all say that, yeah, when, when the market crashes, I'm going to buy. It's just like, yeah, maybe. Um, my, my, my sin is, is that I do, but I'm too tentative. I'm too cautious mm. where, you know, you think, oh, I'm just going to back up the truck. It's really easy to say and it's hard to do. So I tend to think you are much better off just putting everything in and and then continuing to buy in as you save up. The one exception to that would be uh, d- dependent on your age. So, you know, if you've, if you've got, if you're anything under sort of 50, I think that's definitely the way to go. Um, if you're approaching retirement in retirement, it's probably smart to have a bit of cash on the sidelines because mm. if, if it does crash, you just want to make sure that you, you can continue to buy tuna <laughs> cans to eat uh, and, and, and the rest of it. And that's, um, that's for paying but, bills, right? Not for looking for reinvestment opportunities. So it's kind of different to the question that, that Mick asked. You're not saying have some cash on the side so you can buy stuff when it's cheap. You're saying have cash sorry, on the side so yeah. you're not forced to sell when shares are cheap. You never, ever, ever want to be a forced seller, and that's yeah. that is that is the danger of leverage because that is, as Buffett <laughs> says, the only way a smart man can go broke is because yes. when you are on leverage, that that's the GameStop saga, right? You know, these hedge funds went 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 belly up um, because mm-hmm. they they had they had they even though they knew that this stock was going to eventually go down mm-hmm. a lot, mm-hmm. they had mm-hmm. to sell, and 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 you just don't want to ever be in that situation. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you think? Yep, couldn't agree more. Um, I think it's Buffett says he wants to be caught with his pants up, rather caught with yes. his pants down. In other, in other words, yeah. you know, when, when things go well, you want to be ready to take the upside rather than be disappointed and missing out. And we said on Friday, you gave the example of people who during the COVID crash chose not to buy then because they were waiting for a better price and completely got hosed. Mm. Um, yeah. So even, even professionals, like genuinely smart people, got completely hosed on this. This is not. I'm not talking about you know the occasional nutter on Twitter or whatever. These are genuinely smart people mm. who should know better, mm. should have known better in my opinion. Um, I, again, I'm not going to name them because I don't want to be super critical of individuals, but I think the the approach they took at that point when they should have been doing exactly what Andrew said, which is, I'm going to wait for the crash. When it comes, I'm going to buy. They went, I'm going to wait for the crash. But, um, well, I'm a bit scared and maybe it'll get worse and I, and I want to see how things work out first. It's just, you know, mm. they were the ones who should have known better and didn't. Um, remember your psychology working against you. Your brain hates your investing. It just, it, it just does, right? And so mm. we're evolved to be on the savannah and to be running away from lions and all that stuff. We're not evolved to think exponentially. We just can't do it and mm. we can't easily control our emotions when things get real, right? Yeah. So that's the, that's the uh, I completely agree, mate. Um, caught with your pants up. I'm always fully invested to the extent I can be. Um, I've had times when I haven't been, but for no, I've never ever, oh, mate, in the last, I want to say, I'm going to say 20 years actually, I don't think I've ever voluntarily or deliberately had cash on the sidelines. Sometimes it's mm. built up because I haven't bought something or there have been trading rules or I've had, changes to circumstance or something but um, never ever ever have I strategically or deliberately kept cash on the sideline for the purposes of buying when it was cheaper to your point the biggest issue is you know people I, I've used the example before plenty of people lose miss out on 10% upside because they're waiting for a 5% dip you know the old buy on dips thing you know when the share price drop, drop 5% I'll buy if the price goes from a dollar to two dollars where you're waiting for a 5% dip man that's been expensive so don't don't be that person don't do that all right yeah he's got two other yep. quick questions mate let's let's roll them quickly um he asked about brokerage on the New York Stock Exchange. I've been buying shares through the St. George platform and paying around 20 bucks a trade, but recently went for the electric car theory and bought a business called Xpeng. I think that's how it's pronounced. The broker is $59. Is this the norm as it's on the NYSE? No. St. George are gouging you because they can. Uh, Comsec are the same. Uh, they will charge you as much as they think you will pay them. Uh, yes, they have higher costs probably, but you can get free brokerage with someone like Charles Schwab, literally free brokerage. Um, you can get cheaper brokerage with some of the apps that are out there. So... I'm not saying don't pay $59 if you want to keep it with St. George. You do it really rarely. It might be just not worth the hassle to set up a whole new broker to save 50 bucks. 
Um, generally speaking, for most people, though, you can find much better options than, than paying $59. I use Schwab, like it a lot. Um, you do have to have a minimum account balance to open it, but there's Stake and others out there that do exactly the same thing. So there's options. Mm. Any more on that, right? No, I agree. All right. And he's asked for... Now, I'm going to make myself a note, mate, because I just mentioned I'm, we're going to be away. I'm going to be away for a few weeks. Mick's asked for our favourite investment books. So I'm not going to mm. answer Mick's question. <laughs> Sorry, Mick. I am going to, though, in a couple of weeks' time. We're going to hold this, and we'll make this a bit of a feature coming up in the next couple of weeks. Of course, we're going to have to pre-record some episodes. While I'm away, uh, we'll play a part of, at least part of one podcast. We're on our favourite investment books. What do you reckon? You up for that? I love it. I love it. Yeah, there's lo- lots of great stuff out there. Can you remind me of that? Because I'll, I'll forget, mate. I'm, I'm bloody over. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. All right. You bet. Good. <laughs> so, sorry. Remind, me, remind, gonna... remind me to remind you. <laughs> yeah, I will. <laughs> we're, we're both. How, how about listeners? You remind us in July when we've forgotten that we were supposed to be doing it. How about that? All right. Uh, good, thanks, Mick. Good. Great questions, mate. I appreciate it. I hope you don't mind me holding the, uh, holding the idea. He says, thank you very much for your time. Really enjoyed the show. Best regards, Mick. Thank you, mate. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Here's one from Kate, mate. And as our listeners, I love hearing from our female listeners, not because they're more important than the blokes, but because blokes are massively overrepresented in the investment game and always love women uh, taking part and getting involved. She just just says, congrats, guys, for reaching 400 podcast episodes so far. Keep them coming. I would pay good money, says Kate, to be a Susaya subscriber. Absolutely love your work. Thank you. And a big smiley face, and that's from Kate. Kate, the, uh, the invoice is in the mail. Uh, it's 100 bucks. No, I'm kidding. Uh, thank you for the <laughs> kind words. Uh, I, I, I can't promise anything. I don't imagine I'll ever, ever want this to be behind a paywall. So hopefully it's, it's free forever. And if it is, hopefully you'll keep listening. So thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Uh, one from Sam, cool. mate. Sam says, Hi, Scott and Andrew. Loving the new podcast with Andrew. <sighs> <laughs> and here we go. And keen to see for how long Andrew can describe Strawman in a new way at the start of each ep. Mate, I'm doing oh, my best man. to push him, Sam. What have I got myself into? Yeah. Well, yeah, you have got yourself into it, by the way, so that's all right. Uh, but this question is for both of you. There we go. He's, he says, I know Doc, rest in peace. Now, just, just to be clear, Doc's not dead. He's not on the podcast anymore, but he's not dead. So we'll, we'll, we'll have him uh, resting podcastingly in peace. But uh, the, he, as far as we know, he's in, in rude good health and enjoying life. Uh, he says, I know Doc primarily being in the growth space was not a fan of traditional financial modeling techniques, such as the discounted cash flow as the underlying assumptions around growth were generally too difficult to accurately input. Garbage in equals garbage out, so why bother, he asked rhetorically. However, given you're both generally geared more towards value investing, I was wondering what your view is on DCF or any other financial modelling techniques you find useful in your investing strategy. In particular, what time period, e.g. 5 or 10 years, would you be looking at for a DCF projection, if any? Cheers, legends, and that's from Sam. We are legends, mate, mm. in our own lunch times. <laughs> what, do you, what do you what do you think of uh, different financial modelling techniques, mate? Do you have a preferred one? How would you approach it? Yeah, look, I I actually think they all have some kind of value. I, I tend to be of the uh, uh, mindset that. They are, it is, I mean, 100%, garbage in, garbage out. They're, they're always yep. going to be wrong because they always rest on a bunch of assumptions and we just, yep. we just can't know the future. So, they, you know, even if you're right, it's probably because you just got lucky. <laughs> that being said, I think they're very valuable to go through the process because the process itself forces you to think about things. Mm. Um, it, it forces you to put, put it forces you to quantify your expectations. It's not good enough. I hear this all mm. the time with 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 investors saying, "Oh, they're going to grow really, really strongly. I'm therefore I'm <laughs> going to buy it." It's like, well, that's that's great. And even if you're right, but I mean, you, you can. And I know I always say this, but you can definitely overpay for a really great business. Mm. You know, so um, let's let's go with with Doc. You know, he he loves Tesla and he's done extraordinarily <laughs> well out of it. Good, good on yeah. him. But I think even he would sort of say shares aren't worth a million dollars each, no, no matter how rosy the future. So there is a point at which it, it becomes silly, and, that, and that's where these things are handy, is because it kind mm. of forces you to put some kind of quantification around those expectations, and it also shows you how it feeds back into a price. I think mm. the mistake is is when you take it take it too seriously. And yeah. you, you come up with a single valuation that's got 12 decimal points, you know, <laughs> after it. It's just like that is that is a hyper precision that is just, just yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. I think it also depends. Uh, Doc's a great example here. It also depends on the kind of investor you are. So 
Doc is a very successful investor, um, but he's a very different investor to to me and and to you. And and you mm-hmm. and I are, are quite different in our approach as well. Now, mm-hmm. no one's right or wrong. It's just that you know, know thyself, right? Know yeah. know yeah. what you're trying to do. And so for someone like Doc, so Doc Doc would would say, um, I'm, I know him well enough to 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 say this. I think he's basically going for. Very, uh, he's going for very high growth, scalable businesses that have passed a certain point of maturity, which have huge long ra- long runways and the rest of it. And for the kind of person that he is, and the kind of timeframes that he's dealing with, and the kind of companies that he is dealing with, valuation is is isn't as important because mm-hmm. you know it, it's it, now if if you're the kind of person who likes to invest in in Telstra and AMP and CBA mm-hmm. and stuff, you you can't take that approach. Mm-hmm. So it's a horse it's a horses for courses thing Um, and the final thing I would say is that I've actually found that the longer I've been doing this game the more simple my approach has come I used to think that there is there is a great um, degree of appeal in complexity. We, with a lot of things in this life, that mm. you know, it is a it is a complex universe we live in. Things aren't black and white, and and if you're dealing with quantum mechanics or something like that, it is it is very very it is very very complex. In finance, that's not necessarily true. Um, and and Buffett again, I know we talk, we we really should have a drinking game that you have to take a skull every time we say Buffett. Um, uh, is is that. Is that he? He doesn't either. Um, not that he doesn't have any mind towards valuation. He just he's he's just thinking in very general terms. So um, uh, th- these days, I you know my favorite approach these days is I try to sort of say what's a company earning on a per share basis, sort of five years out. What's a reasonable multiple that the market could could be expected to pay for that kind of business, that kind of growth. Mm. Multiply the PE by the earnings per share, and you've got a share price target. And then I just discount yeah. that back by the rate of return that I want. That's yeah. That is that is really simple, and and if I was to sort of present that um, as part of a research paper, if I was working for Merrill Lynch or something, I'd be laughed out of the room. But it's, I've I've found it <laughs> I've found it very very valuable. And the other thing that I do is that I don't I don't just do a valuation. I, I do a couple. So I say here's here's things going swimmingly well, and and here's my assumption, and here's things going my best guess, and here's things going not quite as good as I, as I hope. And it gives mm. me a range of possibilities as well. So I'm not trying to anchor on a particular price, but I'm trying to sort of see where does the current market price compared to my range of, of, of possible outcomes. And I think yeah. it's, I think it's useful to not, to not anchor on a, on a hyper specific single thing that's been calculated in a very specific way. Uh, yeah. But go through the process, learn about them, go through the process. It'll make you a better investor. Even if, yeah. even if you eventually, never use them just the concepts behind them will gear your brain in a way that is very valuable oh, yeah, that's right i think that's exactly right i think i don't you i haven't used dcf made in years now and it's partly because i don't find them super super useful but i would say had i never used them i would absolutely start using them now in the yeah, sense totally. that it, it helps you, as you say, frame your thinking. It gives you, mm. you know, what, uh, Charlie must be a Warren Buffett. Charlie Munger says that he's never seen Buffett use a calculator to work out a discounted cash flow, right? Now, mm. it happens also that Buffett's a, <laughs> a savant, so that helps. Mm. Um, yeah. But also, he's, he's, he's working, cons- you know, a bit like compounding. <clears throat> the rule of 72 is a, is a simple version of what Buffett does in his head. If I can get 10% I double in seven years, okay, cool, I've got that in my head. So I have a mm. sense now of how I can do that. Without having to do the maths every single time of, Okay, ten thousand dollars plus seven percent plus seven percent or ten percent. Sorry, plus ten plus. Okay, okay, we'll get it. You kind of know that in your head. Mm. DCFs allow you to get a frame of reference around. You, you you kind of start to. It's hard to describe until you've done it, but you literally start to work out. Okay, a business growth three percent or five percent or ten percent or twenty percent. You can sort of start to conceptualize what the shape of that line, if you if you graph it out, mm. might look like, and it really yeah. gives you a sense of how hard or difficult, or how hard or hard or easy. Uh, it is how likely or unlikely it is. What sort of price you could pay given some of those circumstances? So yeah. you know, you and I know if you PE eight seems cheap, but if a business is is, is declining at five percent a year, it's not cheap enough. Mm. A no. PE of forty is expensive, but if you can double profit for two years running, then in year three that's a PE of ten, and yeah. so you start to be able to conceptualize that kind of stuff once you've done enough DCFs to make it work. So I would absolutely use a DCF. Yeah. 
I would do it to see what you what it does. The other thing I do is what I've called a reverse DCF. So I went from DCFs to reverse DCFs, and that that was basically me saying, right, I love rather them. than yeah. rather than trying to say what's the share worth, I'd say based on the current share price, what does that imply? What is the market already implying? Do I think I can do better or worse than that? So you might say, right, um, Woolly shares are forty dollars right now. Last year's earnings per share were two dollars. I don't know what the numbers are. Um, dollar fifty. Uh, what do they get? Okay, so let's put the maths in. Okay, well, if it's going to be worth forty dollars, what does it have to grow at for the next ten years to justify that share price? You go, okay, that's going to be eight and a half percent. Okay, well, do I think it can grow at eight and a half percent for ten years? If I say, yeah, you know, I can go twelve percent. Okay, great. Well, that's cheap. If it's like, mm. man, a grocer growing at eight percent for ten straight years, that's not very likely. Okay, cool. I get that it's probably overvalued. So again, yep. those lessons that you start to learn by going through the motions, I absolutely would do it. Um, but those lessons are more valuable than the absolute results per company. Um, and then to your point, mate, the, the Doc's point about DCFs, which I share, is if a company's growing fast, the human brain kind of can't doesn't let us put those numbers into a spreadsheet, right? It's almost irresponsible to say, I'm going to put 20% a year for the next 10 years. Because when you do those numbers, you think, I mm. oh, couldn't possibly happen. Okay, I can't, you know. Now look at Amazon, look at Google, look at Apple, look at others. It actually has happened, did happen. And those who didn't buy those companies because they put the spreadsheet and went, okay, well, okay, 20 this year, but uh, maybe 15 next year and then 10 the year after and maybe five the year after that because at some point it's going to come back to normal, right? There is mm. something really screwy. Again, our human brains are working against us when it comes to exponential growth. We just can't let ourselves do it. We, we kind of feel irresponsible. Mm. Like it's, it's almost reckless, right? And so that mm. sense of, well, it can't possibly happen. Let, let's just, let's, let's pull it back a bit. And that's what can help, can really hurt you in that, in that sense as well. So do the DCF by all means. I don't use anything else, other modeling techniques at all. Um, so do the DCF in my view. Do it forwards first. Do it backwards. Work out, you know, just put some numbers, change the numbers until you get to the current share price. And I'll tell yourself what you, tell you what you need from that. And then start to learn about some of the, just the, just the exponential kind of rules of thumb around how much growth do you need just by certain PEs or price to cash flow or whatever, whatever multiples you want to use just to give you a sense of how to think about it. And once you do that, it starts to become, if not second nature, at least a little more instinctive. Couple closing points. Um, I get hundred percent, and I, I get it because I've been there, and, and yep. to a large degree, still am there. That I'm sure people who are new to this, hearing us talk, that just sounds way. That's it's very intimidating. <laughs> what the hell? And then even with the best of intentions, you start googling DCF, and oh my gosh! Yeah. Like especially yeah. if you don't have an aptitude for maths, it's it's yeah. super 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 intimidating. So I yeah. get that. I really I really do. Totally. But I, I would say I would say like anything worthwhile, there is a learning curve. It does yeah. get easier, um, and it can be very valuable to you. So so. Yeah, I don't think either of us are saying it's easy. It's not. It's it's Correct. it's. I mean, if it was, we'd all be billionaires, right? But there's a reason that we always talk about the famous <laughs> investors because they are they are they have something special about them. With they've they've been able to do that. So so I get that. The other thing is um, three most important words in investing, as Benjamin Graham said, is margin of safety, mm-hmm. which is when you're doing yeah, right. this. Um, let's say I come up with a valuation for well, we talked about A two milk before, and I and I I reckon it's worth five dollars mm-hmm. fifty. Mm. So that doesn't mean that at $5.49, I'm, I'm all in and at $5.51, mm. you know, the, yeah. you, 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 you want to, and that's a ridiculous example, but you know, you, you, yeah. I, I tend to, when I come up with a valuation, I tend to sort of want to buy at an even lower price mm. just mm. to, just to account for the uncertainty implicit in, in all of my assumptions. You can do that mm. in a couple of ways. You can either put that margin of safety in your growth assumptions or put it into the end price you don't want to you don't want to layer too many margins of safety on top of each other because you know you'll work out that <laughs> well, Woolies the is worth two dollars right? and i'm only yeah, going to yeah. buy it at two and you'll never buy because you're, you're, you're there's a compromise that that needs to be made mm-hmm. and then the final point that i'll make is that the the the, the the valuation for you could be very different to the valuation for me, even if we 100% agree on our yeah. assumptions. And the reason being is that you might say, for me, a 7% annual return is great. I'm, I'm happy mm-hmm. with that, given the risks yeah. of the business and my stage in life and my capital and all of this kind of stuff. And I might say, well, I want a 12%. Now, neither of us is wrong. So, so you know, it, it, that, that valuation will depend on, on a personal preference of, of sorts. And again, there's a compromise here. The higher the return that you want, the cheaper the price and the more likely it is that you'll never get in. Um, but if you do, you'll, you'll probably go very well. And uh, if you've got a very low rate of return, you'll have lots of opportunities. But, but the cost of that is, is that you won't be getting super high rates of return. So in between those extremes will be a point that is right for you. And there's no right or wrong answer. It just, it just depends. Very good. 
Uh, let's go to another one. It's probably our last question. So here we go. Question from Arnold. Hi, hi. I wanted to say I love the podcast. Thank you, mate. I'm a newly rejoined member of Share Advisor and Extreme Opportunities. Have you previously been a member seven or eight years ago? Man, I'm sure I've got less hair and more wrinkles since then, mate, but <laughs> thanks for not mentioning either of those. I really wish I'd kept with it. Well, I'm glad you come back. And kept the shares I sold to take a reasonable, but now in hindsight, quite token profit. There's an investing lesson coming around. The companies I sold back then are now almost all worth considerably more than when I sold them. Anyway, onwards. My question is about activity bias and selling down winning positions. It seems to me many people feel the need to tinker and trim winning positions to avoid being overweight in a company or sector when it wildly outperforms expectations. I've heard of many people from your good selves through to Buffett tell stories of trimming winning positions only to later regret it as the new shiny opportunity never quite hits expectations and the old winner just continues to win. You've mentioned activity bias recently. Is this a tricky example of it? Of all the shares I bought a decade or so ago, all I have left that I never sold were the gold miners. Now I'm starting to invest again. They are overweight as a percentage, but I'm preferring to hold them rather than sell them for fresher, unproven ideas. Those same people mentioned above who trim positions also say, be glacially slow to sell. Is inactivity the better side of ambitious optimism? Twice fooled, Arnold. What do you reckon, mate? I'll let you go first. I, I, I um, all right. I, I, um, I, I, I don't want to take. I don't want to take the first first crack each time. So, <laughs> and enough, I think I'm gonna. Enough. I think I'm gonna. I think I know what you're gonna say, and I think I'm gonna strongly agree with it. Nice. So, Arnold, um, love the question, mate. I, I love the experience, by the way, and thank you for sharing. Um, we are always going to have these sorts of issues, and. Honestly, our, all of our investing lives are filled with the first X number of years of screwing it up. So don't be too hard on yourself is the first thing I'd say. Um, I've, I've certainly had my absolute share of terrible, terrible results early on. Uh, thankfully, I've got better as so I've got older and invested longer and that's just how these things need to work. Secondly, um, yeah, I think you did right. I think you, I think the, the don't just sit there, do something phenomenon is really real and in a whole lot of areas, including as you say, in the idea of like, I've got some, okay, maybe I should sell some. I'll put some money over here, put some money over there. The, the, yeah, you, I, can't, I can't improve. You know, you've, you've learned this hard lesson through your own experience. So yes, you're absolutely right. This is activity bias for sure and certain. Um, I will say a couple of things. First is I don't have a problem with people selling to light in positions they feel overweight in. Andrew mentioned the sleep at night test. If not today, it was Friday. Um, I don't think anyone should have 80% of their positions in a given company or sector just because they've grown, right? I just don't think it makes sense because you're risking, uh, uh, hopefully, I mean, if you probably start with 80%. So let's say you started with 20%, it's now 80. <laughs> then your portfolio has probably hopefully doubled at least over that period of time. Um, probably more actually, given the, given the numbers the way they tend to work out. So let's assume that's true. Um, you probably don't want to have 80% of your portfolio in any one sector or company. I certainly wouldn't want to. I, I'm actually reasonably risk tolerant. I've had large positions before, as Andrew well knows. I've had a third of my position, uh, portfolio in a single company, which is more than I recommend for anybody. But certainly, if you've got to that size with individual companies or sectors, you do want to take some profit. So I, it's it's a bit of both, right? It's, it's whether you're doing it for the right reasons. So being tempted to do it for the for the sake of doing something is real, um, because I'll, I'll use an example. <laughs> you, I mentioned Kogan again, mate. Drink. Um, so Kogan, right? I bought some shares. I think my cost base was six bucks originally. I think, I think, I think. Went to thirty dollars. Right now, I don't. I don't mind saying as a, as a portion of my portfolio, when that five bagged from well, not twenty five was so five bagged yeah from five to twenty five, um, or six twenty. Yeah, whatever. Call it five bagged to make it easy for my for my uh, maths. Um, it goes from what was probably I don't know six seven eight percent of my portfolio to literally forty percent of my portfolio. Now they then fell back by two thirds so that 40% is now by the way down to 13% and my portfolio has fallen as a result because you know when you when it's already that big as a share and then falls you're gonna it's gonna hurt and so that's absolutely been my experience I share exactly that experience should I have sold earlier not sure maybe maybe not um, but the open question I guess is you know was it I, I didn't sell because I think the business is still really attractive I think it's got a really bright long term future so that's why I didn't do it and that's, that's the example. Hopefully it comes back. Otherwise, I've made a mistake. But that's the example of avoiding avoiding activity bias. If, though, I had my portfolio 80% in the banks, which most people do, or a lot of people do, um, that's a really ugly overweighting, right? Because if the banks fall and don't come back, 
then you're going to really be handed your backside. So just be careful about about what you hold and why you hold it. Um, avoid the bias, but don't avoid selling just because you're trying to avoid the bias, if that makes sense. So yes, don't do it for the wrong reasons, but don't avoid doing it for the right reasons is probably my, my last point. Um, and don't hold them just because you don't want to sell. So your gold miners, I don't like gold miners particularly. I wouldn't own them today. So if if someone came to me and said, here's my portfolio, I can't give personal advice, but hypothetically I'd say, hey, I'd sell those gold miners. Not because I want to do something, just because I don't think they're going to be long-term winners. And that's the that's the story. So I think the lesson you've learned is a good one. The other thing I'd add is, as we said before, look forward, not backwards. Andrew made this point really strongly. Look forward, not backwards. Say to yourself, if I had it now, would I buy it today? What does the future look like? And if I love the fact I've got a lot of gold miners, then great. If I own them just because I own them, that's different. Um, now, you can sell them and still they do well and you'll kick yourself and that's always possible. Just try and keep your eyes on the future and say, do I feel great about owning these companies for the next 10 years? Do I expect them to be market beaters over 10 years? Not not one year, not three years, not six months, not two months or a week, but long-term. If I had to put them in the bottom row and walk away, are these the ones I'd pick? And if the answer is yes, then as you say, avoid that activity bias for sure. Um, but don't don't hold them just because you own, don't keep them just because you own them. Don't sell them just because they're moving. Uh, just try and be as much as you can rational about the decision of if I went to cash today, would I buy them back tomorrow? All right, mate. How'd I go? Uh, I wouldn't really add much to that. I guess I'd add sort of hearing you talk. There's a couple sort of adjacent points that I would like to make. Um, I I know a couple of people, some friends who, when they first started investing, they did spectacularly well. <laughs> yeah, like, right. They didn't know what they were doing. They were new to it mm. and they just did really, really, really well. Um, mm. And I think that's the worst thing that can happen to a new investor. So don't beat yourself up if you if you have a bad start. And the reason is, is this, is that those that, that come to the, to the investing game and have mm. instant success, they learn the wrong lessons and they learn the lesson that this is easy. So mm. if I've put $1,000 into the market and it's now worth 10,000 after a year, all now I'm thinking is, well, geez, why didn't I put more in? I, this is this is easy money. And you start taking more and more and more risk until it yeah. all blows up. And in, 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 the, in my anecdotal experience of that, they, those, well, those friends are no longer investing because they, they did their dough. They had massive paper gains and then it all went south because because mm-hmm. they, they had the wrong lesson. Whereas the I think the best, it sounds really counterintuitive, but the best experience is a bad one as a new investor because it yep. teaches you respect for the market. You know, it's yep. like the person who's yeah, learning to right. shoot a rifle. If you shoot yourself in the foot on day one, you've got a lot of respect for that for that weapon, and you know you're you're, you're gonna you're going to you're going to put yourself on a firmer footing going forward. So I think can I say I don't, I don't recommend that though? Yeah, yes, you can. <laughs> it's expensive lesson to learn. Don't don't learn it that way. But if you do have that experience, at least you have learned a lesson. I think it's a valuable. Le- I think it's a valuable lesson it is, it is. To, to, yeah. to to have. So it's not. It's painful. You wish you didn't yeah. have it. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I'm the same. I had terrible, <laughs> terrible experience early on, and yeah. that is why, incidentally, there is so much churn with brokerage mm. accounts because it every, but this is particularly true for males because we're idiots whereas <laughs> you know it's like most, most you know well we're, we're all smarter than everyone else uh we have a go <laughs> we then realize oh gosh this is really hard and then they quit and so it's like with yep. most yep. businesses fail and the, most investors fail early on the people yeah. who do well long term are those that learn the lessons and and stick at it stuck um, at it yep. the, yeah, the the only the only dumb thing is when you make the same mistake again and again. So it's okay to make a mistake. <laughs> yeah, it's not okay to make the same mistake yeah. fifty times. That's that's yeah, you're very, doing something wrong there. The other very, the very other true. sort of adjacent point that I'd make on this is that I when I look back at my investing career, mm-hmm. the regret and I've had some mate, I've had some absolute stinkers. I've even lost hundred percent on a couple things, but mm-hmm. they don't. They're not the ones that keep me awake. The ones that keep me awake is when I've tried to be clever and I sold at a yeah, profit. Yeah, right. So there, there is more than I'd like to admit of stocks where I made 30, 40% in six months or a year. And yeah, geez, I thought yeah. I was great. You know, I was like, look out Buffett. Here, here comes the new kids on the block. Look how smart I am. And while that was an incredible profit and I was really happy for it, I look back at a lot of those companies t- today and go, oh my gosh, like if I didn't do anything, I would have 10 times as much money as I had, as I have now. Right, and it, right, it's right. because I, 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 I that, that, that desire 
to, lock, as they say, lock in the profit. And there's these so many stupid sayings on the market. Mm. One of them that I hate is, you never go broke taking a profit, which I just hate <laughs> that saying. Yeah, that's true. You might not ever go broke, but you're never going to compound to any meaningful wealth creation at the same yeah, time yeah. as well. So the, 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 every single successful investor, every single great story out there is the person that, that held on and got the 10-bagger and got mm. those really, mm. really great long-term compounding returns. It's not yep. the dude that made 20% in a given year, 50%, 100% in a given year. That is that is that is chump change compared to the 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 the, the context of what you would otherwise make over a longer time frame with things just it, it's a hair in the tortoise, right? So mm-hmm. um so yeah, don't the, the idea of selling because you've made a profit is a dumb one. If you're selling because the thesis is busted, okay. If you're just if you're selling because you're massively overweight, uh, okay. If you're selling because you think the valuation is just silly and it's too good to be true, that's great. Selling only because you're in a profit will be one of those things that I think a lot of the time you'll you'll massively regret. So that's that's all I'd add to to your excellent point. Love it, mate. No, that's a really that's a really really important one. I think that's you know that's the answer. Um, yeah, I, th- I think. I'll I'll only I'll only just add I think very quickly the the activity bias is real. Um, the bigger one I think probably is just that idea of that you know almost to the point of I'm holding gold miners I made some money on them and they're a big share so therefore something it, it, it's mm-hmm. it's still that idea of you've got to start rationally looking forward and saying where am I now do I feel good about what I own regardless of whether it's up or down regardless of whatever's gone in the past including by the way the, the, the temptation to tinker. Um, if and probably you've said this before, mate, about holding, having an investing journal. Um, yeah, a very long time ago we talked about this. You know, if you uh, the other way to avoid activity bias is to have a journal and be really, really clear about why you own something. Because if you haven't got one and you haven't got a, <laughs> if you've got two lines, bought it because the cabbie said it was a good idea. When you go back and look at that, yeah, you know, if you sold that, I wouldn't call that activity bias, right? I just call that. Mm-hmm. I didn't really have a good thesis. On the other hand, if you can go back and say, look. I wrote a couple of paragraphs. Not, not doesn't need to be super highfalutin language. Doesn't need to be you know investing jargon. Just I really like Woolies because they are a recession-proof business run by some decent people, focused on the long term. They have a quality brand, stores everywhere. They're really immune to competition, and I like its two point four percent dividend. If that's the reason you bought it, and you still think that's the right thesis, then that also will help you overcome activity bias because you look at that and go, that's still true. Now I don't I don't own Woolies. I don't recommend it. So I'm using the example deliberately of one I don't own to avoid mentioning Kogan again. Drink. <laughs> Drink. Um, <laughs> but um, we're not drinking for the record. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, the, the, the idea of... <laughs> the, but you know, that, if that's... You know, if you've written it down, that'll help you overcome the activity by it. You won't trim just because, right? You'll be like, no, actually, I still, that's all still true. And I still feel mm. good about it. I still feel good about the future, even the current price. And so I, I, won't, I won't touch. I think that's really, really, really important. It does go back to the DCF question, just to finish off, mate, we talked about before, is you can't be that specific in valuation. So trimming because it might be a dollar over its fair value is also a crazy way to do it, right? Don't, don't get caught in that false accuracy um, of, hey, I've worked out a number and Woolies is worth $39.40 and now they're at $40.20, so I need to sell. You know, you're never going to be that good. The business, no. if it's a quality business in the first place, will probably surprise you on the upside more often than not. Um, I mentioned Domino's a million times, another great example um, of a business that just continues to do really, really, really well. If I'd done a DCF, by the way, mate, back in whatever, 2013, 14, I would never have had 100 bucks on the shares. And that's another reason, you know, if I'd sold because of a DCF that said, oh, well, by 2021, it's going to be worth $42, now 100. If I don't update the assumptions, if I don't really double check that, um, letting a good business have its head is a really, the, the, better, the, the better the quality of the business, the less, fr- frankly, focus should be on valuation, in my opinion more rope you yep. should give it to surprise you on the upside yep any more on that mate well just a shameless plug i mean in the earliest days of straw man we wouldn't actually let you buy anything with your virtual portfolio unless you put a, a thesis and evaluation oh. in place oh, yeah it turned yeah. out to be a little too strict so we, we made a bit of a pivot on that but it's just because i'm yeah. such a fundamental believer in that that is that is i often say to people look if you're a bit too shy and you don't want to post you can make it all private but for yeah. the love of, it doesn't help us at all if you do. But hopefully, it helps you. It just gives you yeah. that touchstone. Yeah. So the investment, I am, I am such a passionate believer in an investment. Cool. I can't emphasize, I can't emphasize it enough because you, being a human, will will uh, rationalize things just to have something there. There's two <laughs> things. There's two things to it, and it's just it's worth laboring the point. The first thing is just by writing something down, it will mm. force you to think about it. 
So if I, you, someone says to me, I like whatever, uh, Jumbo Interactive. Okay, great. Now write it down for, for, for me and for you why you do it. As you start writing, you'll think, oh, actually, what do I think? It, it forces <laughs> yeah, you right. to clarify yeah. your thinking. Even if no one sees that you write it on a piece of paper and chuck it in the bottom drawer and never look at it again, that is already massively valuable because you've, you've been forced to, rather than this ethereal nebula mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. ideas floating around your brain, you've had to crystallize it in writing. And so it's so yeah. massively powerful. But to your point, it is also massively powerful because in six months, 12 months, five years, whatever, down the track, You'll 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 probably you maybe still have these shares, and it's like, well, I bought it for this reason. Mm, is that mm. reason still true? And in a lot of yep. cases, it won't be. And if it's not, it forces it forces you to decouple, to de-anchor from that. And doesn't mean that you can't keep holding it. You might need to reframe why I'm holding. Why I held it in 2012 might be a very different reason as to why I hold it in 2021. But yeah, it just it gives you that it gives you that perspective will it will keep you honest and if there is anyone that is good at tricking you it's yourself (laughs) particularly (laughs) when money particularly when money and ego is is involved so so keep an investment diary it doesn't people do get intimidated by it because they feel as though Oh, I've got to write this big investment research report, and it's just, but mm. to your point, it does. It, it can be a couple of paragraphs, but whatever mm-hmm. it is, it's 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 something other than just because, and that is already yeah, right. a massive step forward. And you will be an ten time ten x better investor by by mm-hmm. just by doing that, guaranteed. Yeah, nice, very good, mate. That's a really nice way to finish it off. I think if you if you want to hear more. Uh, make sure you do subscribe to the podcast. I think I've shared the socials already at the top, didn't I? But remember, uh, if you yep. aren't already following us, please do, uh, especially jump on the Motley Fool YouTube channel because given that a bit of a push at the moment, hopefully you'll do that. Of course, go to strawman.com, talk to Andrew, uh, jump on Twitter and follow us all on the Twitters. You can find us all there. One day I should have a Motley Fool Money podcast, uh, podcast account, Twitter account. I might do that one day. In the meantime, though, mm. uh, follow us in any of those Twitter handles. And as I said, please do send us your questions because, frankly, a lot of dead air or Andrew trying to entertain himself on air yeah, look, he's a smart, he's a smart, funny, capable guy. No one wants I that. Be, I might be, I might be stretching his abilities even at that point if I make him do an hour of podcast by himself with that, nothing to talk about. So, please send us your questions, uh, comments, feedback, suggestions, all the good stuff. Um, give us something to talk about. Yeah, we obviously look, you know, Andrew, I've said this before in the old days as well as now, and docking between. Um, this is your podcast. We do it for you. We don't charge for it, and. That we like the mailbag because it means they're the things you want to know about. So if you want to know about yeah. it, we'd like to talk about it rather than us talking about stuff that either we care about or we think you might want to know. We'd rather know it for sure, and the mailbag is the very best way for us to do that. So please jump in, jump into the socials or info at fool.com.au. Send us a question, send us some comments, some feedback, so we can answer your question next time. In can I meantime, just say one more thing, mate? Oh, we'll just oh before my. you go, um, just mentioning up. socials. <laughs> The um, I don't mention it enough. It, it's not obvious because I chose a really uh, generic username. But on Strawman, my avatar name is Strawman. So if you go to strawman.com <laughs> forward slash Strawman, right. you'll actually see all of my content. You'll see the portfolio yeah. I've got. The return. So if, if you want to, if you want to follow me, I'd say that's that's a better place to go than than Twitter. That's where I put all the research and recommendations for the ASX. Nice. There you go. You just can't, they can't interact with you directly on there. They can if they want. If they want to send you a message or ask you a question, is it uh, is it going to be on Twitter or can you do it on Strawman? I should know. Uh, yeah, so no, you, no, you can't. There, there, are, there are general discussion forums cool. uh, if you want there to you do go. that. So yeah, if, if you want to do it in the more public sphere, then absolutely. But if you want the more stock nice. specific research stock the research recommendation stuff, so that's 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 where to go. Strawman.com there forward slash Strawman for the recs or the socials for a chat. Yes, perfect. Perfect. Can I wind up now? Uh, well, mate, we've only been going for an hour and seven minutes. I, we could pro- no. Let's wrap it up. Good plan. Full on. <laughs> Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.